Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. Police surround the two-story home half a mile from the White House. Inside, they hear folk songs, men dancing and singing together. The host has planned a cakewalk for the guests, many of them coachmen, cooks, messengers, and butlers, many of them in women's clothing. The police bust through the doors. 
The men scatter, running out the back door or jumping from the second floor windows onto the neighboring rooftops. Glass shatters as one man falls through a skylight. The police grab anyone they can until they're confronted by the queen. Reportedly in a gorgeous dress of cream-colored satin, William Dorsey Swan confronts the police lieutenant and his officers and tells them, you is no gentleman. The police attack Swan, ripping his gown to tatters. As Swan and 12 other black men are taken outside, half-naked, on their way to the jail, hundreds of passers-by gather on the street. The Washington Post will report tomorrow morning, April 13, 1888, Negro Dive raided. Thirteen black men dressed as women surprised at supper and arrested. One psychiatrist writes that they are a lecherous gang of sexual perverts. Swan is charged for being a suspicious character. Police have been breaking up the Queen Swan's ballroom for years, and this won't be the last time. Just over a year before, January 14, 1887, the Washington Critic reported, six colored men dressed in elegant female attire were arraigned in the dock at the police court this morning on a charge of being suspicious persons. They nearly all had on low neck and short sleeve silk dresses, several of them with trains, as well as corsets, bustles, long hose and slippers, and everything that goes to make a female's dress complete. Many D.C. newspapers of the late 19th century report on black men wearing silks, cashmere, and fascinators on their way to drag balls. This 1887 party in particular was hosted in the home of Pierce Lafayette, the intimate companion of William Dorsey Swan. What makes William Dorsey Swan exceptional is not only his persistence, but that he is the first known person to call himself a queen of drag. He proudly hosts these gatherings, undeterred because he finally is free enough to do so. Swan was born into slavery, owned by a woman on her plantation in Maryland. Swan was liberated by Union soldiers in 1862. Pierce Lafayette, Swan's companion in D.C., was a slave in Georgia owned by Alexander H. Stevens, VP of the Confederate States of America. Pierce Lafayette was in a relationship with Felix Hall at the time, who was also a male slave, who V.P. Stevens referred to in a letter as Lafayette's mistress. Swan historian Channing Gerard Joseph found this letter and notes that it is the first known documentation of a same-sex romance between two enslaved men. The original queen, William Dorsey Swan, continues to host her drag balls for years. Even after he's convicted in 1896 and sentenced to 10 months in jail for keeping a disorderly house. When he gets out, Swan refuses to remain labeled a criminal and demands a pardon from President Cleveland. No queer person has ever been known to demand so much justice. Swan never received his pardon, but his mark was made and his drag balls became legendary. Not long after, Washington newspapers examined the terminology of these gatherings, using phrases like sachet across the floor and strike a pose, and using familial terms. The papers report that older participants who mentor their chosen drag family are mothers, honored leaders are queens. After the 13 men were arrested in the famous 1888 raid at William Dorsey Swan's ball, the National Republican reported, It is safe to assert that the number living as do those who were taken into custody last night must be exceedingly small. But of course, they're wrong. Harlem's Hamilton Lodge becomes known for hosting very similar gatherings. Swan's two younger brothers take over the balls in their own drag after the Queen retires in the 20th century. 
Young Daniel J. Swan brings costumes for others at the Washington Balls for 50 years, until his death in 1954. William Dorsey Swan started a trend for good trouble. Queer people right here in his home of Washington, D.C., will soon pick up where the Queen left off. Previously, sexual freedom in the 60s. It may seem that we're bugging you about DOB's first national convention, and we are. We believe you will be missing a great deal if you pass up this gathering. I'm just wondering, do we have to wear skirts? I haven't worn a skirt in 17 years. There is no compromise between what is right and what is wrong. I've come to understand this mechanism of the shared offices on 693 Mission Street. I believe Hal's reasons for keeping it so are personal. You see the power play? If he has made any profits from that, heaven knows what he would do with them, because he has never lived in an expensive apartment or dressed expensively. He has put all of his money into the movement. Present interlocked relationship with a private business enterprise exists. He is strictly a local yokel who envisions himself as king of the San Francisco Queens. Make your grab for power. Come to San Francisco. Find the printer willing to make this magazine. There are five cities with Mattachine area councils done. Chicago, Boston, Denver. He's trying to drain New York of good employees. The New Yorkers want to have the national headquarters in the Mattachine. Please, we should lay aside our petty jealousies and bickering and work together. There are so many persons that are counting on us and need our help. Shall we move on? This whole convention procedure reminds me very much of the murder of the Mattachine Foundation, the illegitimate parent of the Mattachine Society. But I am grateful to have served in such an ambitious organization, and I promise to never publicly speak a disparaging word against the Mattachine Society. Having been forced into a battle, I am determined that this thing will be fought through to a successful conclusion, come what may. This is a test case that will set valuable precedents for homosexuals. This case is a reflection of ancient, primitive, archaic, obsolete taboos and prejudices and a harmful relic. Most police have more respect for their billy clubs than for citizens' rights. July 1960, the homosexual vote. Civic virtue triumphs again. The forces of law and order took another giant step by raiding one of the city's more sedate gay bars and arresting more than 50 women plus the bartender. Enough of the raids! I'm tired of the raids, aren't you? I say, it's time for a queen who knows what he's doing to lead this powerful community to get the dignity we deserve! That's why I, Jose Saria, of the Black Cat, the Nightingale of Montgomery Street, declare my candidacy for supervisor. The torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. I want all 70,000 of you to register and to vote. There are enough of us to win this fight. The starring drag queen at the Black Cat announces his candidacy for supervisor in San Francisco, and word spreads of his arrest for public sex in a hotel bathroom. But most people don't think it's really a big deal. After all, he's an openly gay man and a drag queen. He's the first openly gay man to run for public office in the country, and if he wins, he'll be the first Latino to hold a seat as a San Francisco supervisor. 
As he explained in the previous episode, Jose Saria knows his queer community alone has the power to elect him, and he wants to prove it. He wants to show the mayor and the police that gays have the right to run for public office and affect change in their neighborhoods. Working a job in a club that was operating at a time when San Francisco made its money from sex and race tourism, this queer drag queen of color is going to prove that he can both perform for his community and represent them. Jose stops at the bank with a shopping bag full of his tips from performing last night. He's in quote-unquote male clothing during the day. He has to be, legally. But when he arrives at the Black Cat Cafe, Jose transforms. He's Madame Butterfly in his campy recreation of the opera. He's belting out torch songs rewritten with gay vernacular and sung in his high tenor. He rewrites Carmen, putting on another gay parody of an opera set in modern San Francisco. As Saria dances through the black cat audience, slinking between the tables and his heels, he is Carmen, cruising through Union Square as she sings. The audience cheers for Carmen, managing her escape from the SFPD vice squad. There's nothing wrong with being gay. The crime is getting caught. (laughs) Yes, it's all fun, all games here at the Black Cat, until they come knocking down the door again, but I intend to change that. I walked by the new courthouse today and saw the sign, Equality Before the Law. Let's take that, Equality Before the Law. Let's take that and shove it down their throat. They read the laws in two different ways and make gays second-rate citizens, but I've never been a second-rate citizen. I've learned a lot about the law. I've learned that in order to run for an office, you must have a party endorse you, Democrats or Republicans. You must choose one. Neither one wanted me. I've always been a Democrat, so I think I earned the right to threaten to sue the Democrats to allow me onto the ballot. They still won't endorse me. But I'm on the ballot for supervisor. You know, just to get on, I needed 35 signatures. So I'd blackmail 35 people. Now, getting people registered to vote, that's even harder sometimes. We're running all over the city, in the bars, in the bathhouses, in the glory holes, poking our heads through, did you register to vote yet? If we stick together, vote together, unite as a minority, we will not just protect the black cat, we will protect our entire community. One more time, take the hands of the people beside you. Let's go outside, sing out, follow me across the street to the jail. Sing to our sisters arrested in the raids earlier tonight, to our brothers handcuffed in the park. United we stand, divided they catch us one by one. But it's not enough just to sing to them. Jose wants to do more. He and his friend Guy Strait, not a pseudonym, they get together to begin the first gay newspaper in San Francisco, the League for Civil Education News. The LCE News, or LC, is bi-weekly, reporting tips like methods to avoid entrapment and diagrams of tea rooms downtown and how police go about surprising men inside. Jose and Guy report descriptions of cops who entrap people under headlines like Have you seen this man? And How to spot a cop? While covering the Halloween drag balls and organizing his community through Elsie, 
Jose encourages men who were arrested to go to jury trial and plead not guilty like Dale Jennings did in the beginning of the Mattachine Foundation. People listen to him. Court dockets in San Francisco become so full of homosexuals demanding jury trials that judges begin to demand prosecutors bring some real evidence along before booking a trial. And rather than letting his black cat co-workers get arrested for intent to deceive by wearing drag, Jose makes every waiter at the black cat assigned to wear, cut out in the shape of a black cat, that says, I'm a boy! See, officer, I'm not trying to deceive anyone. As Elsie starts to gain some clout, their League for Civil Education holds a meeting between gay bar owners, homophile organizations, and police officers. Bulletins are typed on single sheets of paper and dispersed through the bars. Cooperation with the police is possible and necessary. They discuss improving the relationship between gays and the police department. The cops are polite and seem interested in the issues, but they deny entrapping anyone or discriminating against gay bars. Elsie sends a letter to Chief Cahill. He doesn't respond. So fine, they tried to meet him in a professional manner, and he'll regret not responding. Elsie begins a new push for voter registration. Politicians start turning up at the Black Cat to see who this starving artist is, who is bold enough to run, openly homosexual. They watch Jose command the audience and stuff his bra full of cash from the homosexual community. Take a 15-minute walk out of the Black Cat and down Montgomery Street, where another letter requesting the 1960 Mattachine Society Convention transcript waits in the Pan-Graphic Press mailbox. Hal Call mails the transcript off to the member requesting it, who reads it, and promptly cancels their Mattachine membership. They see this organization is full of drama. Mattachine Review Circulation takes a dip, which will continue to decline for the rest of the publication. The Society's debt reaches $5,000. The New York chapter writes, questioning what Hal Call is doing with their membership dues. March 15th, 1961. Letter to all area councils from the board of directors. We are beginning the process of getting the society out of the branch office business in order for cities to truly become autonomous working units and not be hindered in their work to a corporation, which in many cases is thousands of miles away. The society's income and its membership have been decreasing at an alarming rate. There are definite signs that Anui has settled upon the memberships of the area councils. That letter from the board, which is basically controlled by Hal Call, goes on to make some pretty specific demands. The board of directors orders that all properties and funds of the Mattachine Society, Inc. in the possession of the several area councils shall be forwarded at once to the Society's national office in San Francisco. Because of corporation and trademark laws, no use of the name Mattachine may be employed by any but the Mattachine Society, Inc., a California corporation. Cooperation will be assured by the Society to any other groups working in our field. Because the past progress of the Society speaks for itself, it is also urged by the Board of Directors that all those who wish to maintain membership in the Society continue to subscribe to the publications of the Society and, in general, continue to support the work of the Society for the benefit of all. But mostly for the benefit of Hal Call. A vote is called. The only two members on the board of directors not to vote in favor of dissolving the Mattachine Society as a national organization, Curtis DeWeese and Tony Segura of New York. 
There was no schism here, the board president says. It was simply seen that it is better to stay together in spirit than in name. The National Mattachine Society dissolves. They revoke all local charters. Each chapter is set adrift on its own. Detroit, Denver, Boston, Chicago, New York, and San Francisco all go independent. Philadelphia's chapter becomes the Janus Society and starts a magazine called Drum to cover both serious homophile issues and print physique photos. Philadelphia is very successful. Al Dion in New York calls Mattachine leaders all over the country, asking them to reject the board's decision. Mr. Dion, we are trying to ride a horse with two heads and no body. But with the distance and poor communications, limited finances, and barely surviving without the support of volunteer workers, a national organization is outright impossible. Members who have attended both of our chapter meetings on either coast have reported a wide difference in implementation of the Mattachine idea. How much better we think is it when you and those who agree with your policies form your own independent group? It's as the rumors about the New York chapter's intentions suggested. A sort of confederation, depending upon how and to what extent the former individual area councils wish to do so. Leadership coming from both sides of the nation creates conflicts which you and I must admit were impossible to resolve. Now, the need for any capricious and devious effort to whack away at the central core of Mattachine is over. Tony Segura of New York is living in Richmond with his lover when he receives word of the National Mattachine Society's dissolution. He angrily writes to New York. This, of course, is the only way of making official what has existed sub rosa for several years. The Mattachine Society Incorporated is but the name of what might better be called Harold L. Call Enterprise. Do not submit to the demands of the Mattachine property to be returned to San Francisco, and do not turn over the Mattachine name, which we have earned. Jim Kepner writes privately to New Yorkers. Hal's exclusive claim on the Mattachine name was untenable because the Mattachine, as organized in Los Angeles in 1953, had repudiated, by Hal Cal's motion, any connection with previous groups of that name. Louis Christie, a New Yorker in San Francisco, reads Tony's letter and responds, This seems to be the best step forward that we all wanted. It will depend on the foresight, ability, maturity, integrity, and independence of the area councils involved. Your letter sounds as if written by a man on the moon. Have you been away from New York that long? The owners of the Mattachine Society in San Francisco have been trying to live off the Mattachine Society. Alcohol is indeed a monster, and everything that you say about him is the absolute truth. I have tried for the past two years to explain him to myself, but I have found him completely inexplicable. Yet I am of the firm opinion that he is, perhaps, the one ingredient that is most lacking in New York. I have seen him work, and I have observed his courage in actions many times. And I have seen him suffer at our petty conventions. I certainly do not agree with everything he does. But on the other hand, I have seen him succeed when most of us would have failed miserably. And I feel that it is to the advantage of all of us to trust him more than we have. At any rate, you people in New York will be free of him now, and never again will you have to think of yourselves as deprived by Hal Call Inc. I hope you do something constructive. Chicago's chairman writes to the board. With dissension from area councils, petty jealousy, etc., this can be the only answer. Boston has just rented a new Mattachine office space. It may very well be a good thing. There would then be an East Coast Mattachine. Upon hearing of this idea, a collective East Coast organization, Hal writes to friends at one magazine. 
So Aldadion will get his federation after all. Let him have his headache. The New York group gathers to vote. They officially sever ties with the Mattachine Society and reincorporate as the Mattachine Society of New York. MSNY carries on. Other local groups begin to dwindle. Most members only attend meetings when there's nothing better to do. Chicago collapses. Boston follows. Denver becomes a group called The Neighbors and then dissolves too. Elver Barker stops sending the Mattachine Society his monthly $5 donation and instead forwards it to MSNY in support of the New Yorker's stand to keep the Mattachine name. As every city carries on without the national organization to support them, every city, in turn, no longer has to support the national organization. Membership dues stop coming into San Francisco. Mattachine Review subscriptions continue to fall as cities begin looking into their own competing magazines. Don Lucas answers his apartment door. Hal stands there crying. He's had another fight with Jack. He can't pay Mattachine's rent. And his magazine is going under. Dr. William Gilbert told me himself during our final session that the FBI had asked about me. I believe the university is keeping me from finding steady work, and I demand to see my file. During the break between new episodes, subscribers to my Patreon heard a bit of a prequel crossover type of story on my bonus podcast. It's the story of the first Washington Mattachine chapter back in the early 50s, long before our current quote-unquote characters came on the scene. This group was short-lived and fell apart under the pressure of paranoia. And it features a character from the very first episode of this podcast. Indicated he was at that time a homosexual and he intended to continue as one. You can hear this bonus episode and tons more at patreon.com slash queer serial. Click the link in the episode notes. Chevalier Publications is beginning to thrive. Virginia Prince's Transvestia magazine is so successful that they begin to print another monthly newsletter called Femme Mirror, and also a frequently printed clip sheet scrapbook of newspaper clippings and photos of cross-dressers and trans women. Remember, there is a difference. After a year, Virginia has quite a following. She decides it's time to start an in-person discussion group. A meeting room in a small Hollywood church is arranged, and Virginia sends out invitations to local subscribers. A dozen or so people show up, seemingly men, each with two paper bags. They open the first one and put out their snacks and refreshments for the group. Virginia then asks everyone to sit, and she explains her idea for the group. I'm aware of everyone's reluctance to acknowledge to any other man that you are a transvestite, since you have no way of knowing that he is too. She instructs them all to open their second paper bag together. They each remove hose and a pair of heels from their bag, and everyone puts on their stockings and shoes, at the same time, so as not to incriminate each other. The first meeting of the Hose and Heels Club is formally open. After a long discussion, they decide their next meeting will be in full dress. A member volunteers his house as their meeting place. I put one or two in each room and then scurried from room to room, zipping up dresses, fastening bras, combing wigs, advising on makeup, and generally encouraging the participants. Many of them were extremely shy about going downstairs to face their sisters, 
and I had to explain that this wasn't a Miss America contest, and nobody had to be beautiful, only be herself. Once they gather and calm down, everyone begins chatting like they've known each other for years. Meetings soon begin to take place monthly, and then every two weeks. Many suffered from a sense of being alone, of worrying whether they were gay or not, or whether they were psychopathic because of their desires. Society programs you to think in terms of the stereotype of masculinity and femininity. So while it was of some help to have a magazine for such people, and it was nice to have a local group where feelings and opinions could be aired, it still wasn't enough. Every cover-to-cover reading of the latter leaves me with a nagging in my brain that all is not right with the endeavors of the Daughters of Belitis. Now, to my satisfaction, I have put the finger on the cause of my disquiet. I prefer to see the problem of the lesbian as an aspect of the larger problem of society today. Conformity. The neglect of the individualistic impulse that alone leads to creativity and the ultimate enrichment of culture. What at one time to most of us seemed a curse is perhaps a blessing to all. Perhaps instead of pleading, please world, accept us, we're really very nice and not a bit different. We should say, look world, we understand the agony of losing what each of you finds best in yourself, and we can help you to be unafraid of your uniqueness. R.L. California. The FBI continues to follow the Daughters of Belitis as they open new chapters. In Phoenix, the FBI field office receives a file from headquarters labeled Police Training. Inside, Los Angeles agents report information on a female operative of DOB who held business meeting at her home on the first Wednesday of each month. They report on two more women in the DOB, one of which is connected to the University of California and attends monthly DOB and Mattachine meetings. At the one incorporated Midwinter Institute in Los Angeles, one's director presents what they are calling a homosexual bill of rights, listing in detail all of the laws homosexuals should be fighting to change. Some DOB leaders find it ridiculous. Some of them even threaten to withdraw from Belitis if this bill of rights isn't dropped. Fighting laws means fighting conformity. A push against conformity is difficult for a group that can't even wear pants at their own convention without police suspicion. Daughters of Belitis President Jay Bell reports. Perhaps some may feel we are advocating conformity. We are. When it comes to common courtesy to those who are yet so uneducated that homosexuals strike as much fear in them as do child molesters, dope addicts, the mentally ill, etc. This is outward conformity. The same outward conformity demanded of numerous groups of people who are in positions of foreign to public at large. For instance... The ex-convict, the alcoholic, to do other than conform outwardly would hurt them personally and be of no avail until the public is better informed. Hal's mother, Jean Call, arrives in San Francisco. She's there to give Hal $425, a loan to cover the Mattachine's office rent. Mrs. Call arrives alone, without Hal's stepfather or stepbrothers. Where's Jack? Palo Alto. What on earth is he doing there? He's on a trip. He's in the veterans hospital getting sober. Don. You would tell her eventually. How is he, Harold? I don't know. He doesn't write. Jack doesn't write? Jack writes. Hal doesn't respond. Oh. I visited him. He's well. As well as he can be. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I'm just glad he's well. 
I'll be sure to pray for him. Oh, then I'll be home by tomorrow, I'm sure. How? A little prayer doesn't hurt anyone, Harold. You can smear churches in your sex magazine, but... The prayers I denounce in my publication are pleas for God to strike down every homosexual where he stands. If you read the review... I read every page of the Mattachine Review, Harold, or I'd hear about it from you. I have written a rather large check to support your hobby, which I might have sent to your brother's church instead. No matter how Hal Call presents his identity as professional, his parents still see the maladjusted boy. The sick, the rejected, the homosexual and transgender people of the early 1960s have often spent their lives wearing masks of conformity in order to receive love and approval from their families. The queer people of 1961 read the words written by Hal Call, Del Martin, Virginia Prince, civil rights leaders, and the many others now boldly speaking up. For some readers, their naturally rebellious instincts begin to reveal their true selves. Some begin to display their sexuality proudly, scandalously. Jean Call knows her son is no innocent, God-fearing virgin. If people decide to come out and speak up, they can't hide that they are sexual beings. They are defined as sexual beings. Many people are. Birth control is becoming more popular. Divorce rates are rising. Illinois has become the first state to legalize sodomy. All the while, trans and gay publications are passed between friends, and a younger, more sexually open generation begins to accept themselves. They see that perhaps society considers queer people maladjusted because society has long considered anyone blatantly sexual as maladjusted. Still, the activists seek to change society's view of them, but they can't always win the approval of the people they love most. Hal privately continues to record his thousands of sexual contacts over the years in his diaries. He never says a single passionate sentence about any of these men. Unconditional love is foreign to Hal Call, but he always responds to letters from the person whose love he wants the most. Others may have my company, Mother, but it is you that have my heart. One veteran writes to another. In World War II, I willingly fought the Germans with bullets in order to preserve and secure my rights, freedoms, and liberties and those of my fellow citizens. In 1961, it has, ironically, become necessary for me to fight my own government with words in order to achieve some of the very same rights, freedoms, and liberties for which I placed my life in jeopardy in 1945. This letter is part of that fight. The winds of change are blowing. A wise and foresighted government will start now to take constructive action. You have said... Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I know what I can best do for my country, but my country's government, for no sane reason, will not let me do it. Two days after the official collapse of the National Mattachine Society, Frank Kameny's petition to the Supreme Court is denied. Frank remains unemployed most of that time and writes to anyone who might help him. President Kennedy never responds to this letter. In June 1961, Frank writes to the new Civil Service Commission Chairman, John Macy Jr. Dear Mr. Macy, I am writing in regard to remarks which you made in public speeches on or about May 10th and June 1st, 1961. 
In the first speech, you stated that manpower shortages could best be met by policies that do not ignore the abilities of minority groups, that you could think of no better way to meet the expected manpower shortage of the 1960s than by non-discriminatory personnel policies. You have reinforced this in other public utterances. I could not agree more fully. However, I should like to point out that in regard to one minority at least, your own Civil Service Commission practices discrimination of the most vicious and virulent sort. That it is not assuring equal opportunity for entry and advancement without regard to non-quality measures. That it is insisting upon the strictest of conformity. That it is acting with no slightest regard for the individual worth and dignity of the men and women serving. The minority group to which I refer is our nation's homosexuals, a minority in no slightest way different as such from other minority groups, such as the Negroes and the Jews. There is not one single argument which can be advanced against the employment of homosexuals which does not have its parallel in the invalid arguments of segregationists, anti-Semites, and the like, against the objects of their prejudices and hatreds, and which arguments are not, therefore, equally invalid, degrading, and disgraceful to what considers itself to be a civilized country. John Macy Jr. replies within a week. The civil service regulations include the following as a disqualification for employment in the federal service. Criminal, infamous, dishonest, immoral, or notoriously disgraceful conduct. The Commission's policy, based on impartial consideration of most cases involving all aspects of human behavior, is that homosexuals, or sexual perverts, are not suitable for federal employment. On considering the representatives in your letter of June 5, 1961, I find no basis for changing this policy. It's Ray Rivera's 10th birthday, July 2nd, 1961. Ray's grandmother says, the kids are calling you Pato. Rivera's grandmother is distraught over the way the kids treat her feminine grandson. Ray is so distraught about the pain her grandmother feels that she swallows all of her grandmother's pills. When she starts to feel them, she panics, tells her aunt, and they rush to the hospital. Ray lives. Ray feels like she's the only faggot in the world. Her later words. When Ray and her grandmother take the train to Coney Island, a group of drag queens step on board at 42nd Street. Ray is looking. Her grandmother is too. The more Ray is also teased, she knows she'll have to leave her grandmother. The teasing is tearing her apart. Ray Rivera runs away to Times Square. She goes there to make money to survive. Rivera puts on a little mascara and walks the streets. We gotta move it, we gotta move it. Why? The camarones are coming, they're coming to get us. Plainclothes cops. Okay, I'll walk, I'll walk. The cops corner Ray and the other queens in a hallway by the theater. A paddy wagon pulls up. Ray Rivera, who will later change her name to Sylvia, like so many young, queer, transgender people, she pushes up against conformity. She won't be the boy she's told to be. Conformity is pushed onto every American person by the government's hand. Remember the Sumerian myth about Enki and Nenma in episode 7? Whatever fate you decide, good or bad, 
I will improve it. They're the government, and the seemingly broken little creature they made with no genitals. That queer human, like all their little creatures, has got to have some form of serving the king, or they're useless. Conform that creature, or it's worthless to the government. In Washington, D.C., Mrs. Nichols waits in a military school cafeteria as boys join their parents for lunch. Her son is upstairs, unpacking and putting on his uniform for the first time. It's time for some discipline in Jack's life. He's shown little interest in school, and he'd prefer to study his own subversive subjects. Jack had called every embassy in Washington, D.C. to ask for information about the country they represent. Soon, the Nichols' mailbox was full of beautiful magazines describing every country in the world. Jack's father, Jack Nichols Sr., was quick to get a phone call from his boss, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, asking why Jack Jr. is getting mail from the Soviet Union. Jack Sr. was furious. The more his dad got angry, and the more Jack learned about the world outside of American conformity, the more rebellious Jack Jr. became. He learned Russian phrases and declared himself Muslim. He refused to say the Lord's Prayer or the Pledge of Allegiance, so he was enrolled in a private school, where he made friends with an Iranian family. So his parents then transferred him to a military school. While Mrs. Nichols waits for him to return to the cafeteria for his first meal in military school, she's informed that Jack Jr. has gone AWOL. They find him, hitchhiking, all the way back to the Iranian family, who he missed. His mother drives him home, where he lays in bed, upset. Why do you keep doing this? Why did you run? There is a reason why I shouldn't go back to the military academy. It's an all-boys school, and lately I've been finding myself attracted to members of my own sex. <sighs> go to sleep. Let's talk in the morning. Jack has no interest in surviving the exaggeration of male culture in that military school. Unhealthy masculinity is actually what he'll later write a book about. His mother decides to take him to a doctor who, fortunately, is somewhat enlightened and tells her Jack doesn't need testosterone shots, but maybe this is just a phase. The Nichols move away from the influence of Jack's Iranian friends, and it totally changes him. Just kidding, of course not. In Pennsylvania, Jack reads the Quran and other religious texts. He fools around with the neighbor boy, and he continues to refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance on school. Do not make me take the necessary steps to make you say the pledge to our nation. What sort of steps? That's for me to know, and you to find out. But you won't like them, and I can assure you of that. I hate being forced. You'll hate it more if you don't obey. <laughs> A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Jack goes home, writes his mother a note, and runs away to Washington, D.C. This continues with his FBI agent dad sending police to search the highways for him when he runs away. His uncle even tries the so-called hooker cure to fix his homosexuality. Jack also attempts suicide. He's only 14 when he reads Donald Webster Corey's The Homosexual in America, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, and Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness. He shares them with friends. They read passages from them to each other over the phone. One day, Jack looks up to his friend Ted at the top of his family staircase and says, I know you're gay. I'll have none of your perversity. To escape Ted's father throwing bricks at him, the two go off exploring gay bars together. Jack spends his days reading in the Library of Congress and nights at parties around D.C. 
and the years go by. He's 23. He overhears someone talking about one of his favorite books. Donald Webster Corey, uh, his book, The Homosexual in America, it's made an excellent case for our rights. Jack Nichols gets off the couch and looks for the person talking. Approaching a circle of people chatting, Jack says, I've wrote The Homosexual in America. The man steps back to make room for Jack in the circle. And what did you think of it? I think every gay person should read it, but I've never met anyone discussing it in public. You seem rather young to have read it. I read it seven years ago. Jack Nichols, by the way. Frank Kameny. Give me a phone number. Perhaps we can discuss Corey's book sometime. I'd give you my number, but I don't have a phone right now because I haven't been able to afford one since beginning this struggle to get the government to reinstate me. A few days later, Jack goes to Frank's messy apartment on Columbia Road. Like so many others inspired by Donald Webster Corey's book, Frank and Jack decide to start a grassroots organization for homosexuals. They immediately check to see if one or the Mattachine Review are available in D.C. Press is the best way to spread the word about their goals. The closest group, the Mattachine Society of New York, is eager to share contacts on the East Coast. Alda Dion and Curtis DeWeese send them a mailing list immediately. Perhaps with an ally in D.C., the MSNY can gain some strength over San Francisco. But Frank has no intention of being their flunky. Here's some more cool stuff you can find on my Patreon, which I'm plugging again mostly because this story needed another act break. There are interviews with some of the voice actors and real activists from the movement, photos through the research process, I'll mail you buttons and mugs, and I just got a new batch of Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar, um, episode transcripts if you're into that. I'm doing a fun new photo series through all of the hot lesbian art in various editions of Songs of Belitis throughout a century of its publication. Many of those are not safe for work. And next week, I'll be releasing a new archival audio project on the bonus podcast. There is a type of homosexual who gets hung up on the idea that, boy, the more masculine, the more attractive. And he starts out chasing masculine homosexuals, and then he gets completely fixated on this idea of what you call rough trade where you ask questions such as, do you believe in God, do you belong to a church, do you like sports, would you want your son to be homosexual on down, do you prefer the, which branch of the service do you prefer, do you like Tulula Bankhead and Jane Mandel? <laughs> if that sounds familiar, it's because we heard that story back in episode six. Soon you can hear it from Randy Wicker himself in the 1960s. Find it all at patreon.com slash queer serial. Okay, act three. August 1st, 1961. Al and Curtis arrive from New York at the Hay Adams Hotel in D.C., just one block from the White House. They confirm their reserved 8 p.m. meeting room and an order of 16 cups of coffee. The MSNY leaders are sent down the hall to room 120. Right this way, Mr. Didion. The concierge then picks up the phone and dials. Hello? I'm calling from the Hay Adams to confirm the arrival of Mr. Didion and Mr. Dewey's in room 120. Thank you, sir. Deputy Chief of Police Roy Blick hangs up his phone and dials for the FBI Washington field office. As head of the Morals Division, it's his job to alert the Bureau. Deputy Chief Blick has already encountered pushback from homosexuals demanding justice. Just like everywhere else, dancing is not allowed in Washington, D.C. gay bars. Just a couple years ago, after a raid on a private club in a rented house, Blick received a letter from a homosexual saying he'd vote against police funding unless the cops justify this raid. Yes, this homosexual said defund the police. 
So Blick picks up the phone and calls the guy, asks him to come down to his office. He's not going to take this. Blick has been on the force for 30 years. He organized the sex squad in the 1940s that became the Morals Division, the group of police who hunt and entrap homosexuals in the parks. The homosexual entered his office to see the intimidating one-eyed officer. Blick lost the other eye when a tear gas shell exploded in his face during a raid. Deputy Chief Blick asks the guy where he lives, where he works. The homosexual says, These raids are a waste of police funds and dancing should not be illegal. Blick brushes him off and the homosexual leaves. The outspoken, letter-writing, persistent homosexual? Of course, was Frank Kameny. Pleasure to finally meet you, Al. Curtis? Likewise, Frank. We would like... What a nice turnout. Let's all have a seat around the table and begin. We have coffee on the way any time now, right? Sixteen people take their seats to discuss the founding of the first homosexual rights group in D.C. Outside the open door to room 120, a man in a suit casually walks by. A minute or so later, he passes by again. And again. Observed about 16 well-dressed men in discussion. The agent will write in his report. The concierge enters the meeting room and pours the coffees. They were drawing up bylaws. They tell the FBI agent. Something about resolutions. They seemed well-behaved, sir. There are a quarter of a million homosexuals in this area alone. Mr. Kameny, may I have a word with you? A potential member stands in the meeting and gestures toward the open door. Uh, yes, of course. Al, Curtis, how about you take everyone's name and phone number? Frank heads for the door, following the recruit. He glances at the other guests sipping coffee, one man with a gun holster on his hip. Mr. Kameny, I recognize one of the men in there at the table. Who? They point discreetly. Do you know that that's Sergeant Louis Bochette? Sent by the Moral Squad, no doubt. I once saw him in the park making an arrest. The police must be undercover on your mailing list. Of course. Frank and the new member walk back into the meeting and sit down. We've yet to choose a name for our group. Do we have any suggestions? We would be in favor of your using the Mattachine name, Mr. Kameny. It would lend a bit of established respectability. We are an independent group, Mr. De Dion, though I appreciate your support. I agree with Mr. De Dion, Frank. We could get started right away under the Mattachine name. Many people already know of the organization, and their chapters now operate independently of one another. I wouldn't want to be tied down by another person's agenda. Frank scans the room of potential members and the undercover officer. This organization will be radical unwavering in our pursuit for justice. We will not be intimidated. You'll be free to act as you wish. Good. We'll be called the Mattachine Society of Washington. Frank stands. I understand there's a representative of the Metropolitan Police Department here. Could he please identify himself and tell us why he's here? It is illegal for an officer to go unidentified when asked for credentials. Go on. Frank stares at the man with the gun holster until he stands, seemingly embarrassed. No, I have nothing to say, the officer nervously announces. Chief Blick and the Morals Division are on the New York Mattachines mailing list, and he received an invitation. He sent me to take notes... And I must say, I'm impressed by your organization. Officer Fouchette, if the local police would like to request a meeting with the Mattachine Society of Washington, you may contact me at the address provided to you this afternoon. The officer storms to the door. 
You may tell any federal agents just the same. Back at the Bureau, agents update the security index. A message from the Los Angeles special agent in charge arrives for Director Hoover, requesting to recruit a former communist as an informant for the FBI. This person has left the Communist Party on their own and has no family inside the party. An agent flits their fingers over the hundreds of files in the security index until they find the person requested, Harry Hay. No new information. He no longer even fits the five-year active time frame required to be included as a communist in the index. Recruit him. Floor. FBI agents enter the Pan-Graphic Press and San Francisco Mattachine offices at 693 Mission Street. You might recall from Season 1, Hal has had his run-ins with the FBI, along with his Mattachine recruit, David Finn. He welcomes these agents into his office and agrees to share any relevant information about other homophile activists that the Bureau might need, and also puts them on his Mattachine Review subscription list. The agents ask him about... Guy Strait and Jose Sarias, League for Civil Education, Elsie. Hal says it's a front. Hal then agrees to help the agents find any homosexuals they're looking for, whether or not they're members of his society. South of the Bay in Los Angeles, Hoover's request to recruit the former communist Harry Hay is carried out. Harry Hay narrowly escaped charges on teaching for the Communist Party and was exiled from the Mattachine just before the Bureau could have connected him to it, back in Season 1. His gay organization was taken from him out of fear of the FBI. He now lives quietly, occasionally writing for One Incorporated's publications. Now, nearly a decade later, August 4th, 1961, two agents arrive at Harry's door on Westwood Boulevard in Los Angeles. Mr. Hay, we'd like to discuss security matters with you. I had nothing to say and do not wish to talk to the FBI. This interview is over. Harry Hay is finally removed from the FBI's security index. After more than a decade, the Bureau lets Harry go, and he can finally let go of the Bureau and the worry that his red history will take down the organization he started. If it doesn't take itself down first. Harry writes privately to his friend Gene. I pity Hal Call with all my heart and grieve with him and his San Francisco board that the lion they once had by the tail has been, by a combination of ruthless opportunism and overreaching artlessness, reduced to that of a paper tiger. Hal Call will not be pleased when he hears word that another man is now using the Mattachine name in Washington, D.C. August 14, 1961, 3 a.m. at the Taybush Inn in San Francisco, Ethel Merman exits the cafe as dozens of people dance around the jukebox. She's on tour with Gypsy, and after a few hours of drinks with gay friends, she's headed back to her hotel. The party goes on without her in this small space where gay people gather after the bars close. Fifteen minutes after Ethel leaves, floodlights blast through the Taybush doors. Suddenly, everyone bolts. Nobody move. Hands up. Out the back door, down the alleys, out the windows, the front door, any exit that can be found. Fourteen cops take the place. Get over here. Seven patrol wagons pull up as bar patrons are lined up to be searched. 
Officers pick out anyone associated with political clout and any prominent people in general and allow them to leave. They barely missed Ethel Merman, but more than a hundred are arrested in the largest gay bar raid in San Francisco history. They're put in the paddy wagons and sent to the jail. Hal calls home phone rings, waking him up. Dozens of people need legal assistance. He rushes to the station as the San Francisco Chronicle and other papers rush to press. And in the biggest action of its kind in the history of the department, police raided a small restaurant at Bush and Taylor Streets early yesterday and jailed 101 suspected sex deviants, reminiscent of the old speakeasy days of Prohibition. Three months from Election Day, the city takes on Jose Saria's community. This time, the community is prepared to fight back. Next week in Episode 11, The Rejected, The Elected. Recording, Sylvia Rivera, original name, Ray Rivera Mendoza. I was born in 1951. I had a mother and I had a father. In 1953, my mother decided to try to offer herself. At the same time, she tried to kill me. She knew I was going to have a very hard life. And yes, I've had a very hard struggle. I tell these stories of my life because I know that my children in later years, my transgender community will understand we have to stand up and speak for ourselves. We have to fight for ourselves. We saved their lives. We were the frontliners of the so-called 1969 rebellion of the Stonewall. I don't know how long I'm going to be around, but I wanted to be the way I feel. We'll hear more from Sylvia Rivera soon. In the meantime, you can hear that full interview with her on YouTube. Search for Randy Wicker interviewing Sylvia Rivera on the piers. Teachers, if you'd like transcripts of the episodes, contact me on QueerSerial.com and I'll send them your way. Thanks to everyone who has already reached out. Also on QueerSerial.com, you can find the resources for the podcast. One in particular used for this episode is not even a book yet, but his research will be soon. Channing Gerard Joseph's writing about the original queen of drag, William Dorsey Swan, can be found on his website, ChanningJoseph.com. There's a link in the episode notes here. His book is due out in 2022, and it will be titled House of Swan, Where Slaves Became Queens and Changed the World. It's incredible that what William Dorsey Swan did has led to RuPaul's empire a hundred years later. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to help boost the show to more listeners, please rate the show on iTunes. It's a huge help. You can also follow me on Instagram at Queer Serial for pictures of all the people, gay bars, doc events, and lesbian pulp. 
discussed on the podcast. Check out my other podcast with Sidetrack, Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling, wherever you're listening to this podcast. That show is Queer Stories Told Live in a Gay Bar, and I also have little history segments every episode. Also check out my Patreon for all sorts of bonus stuff you've already heard me ramble about today. If you want to keep up with all the queer projects I've got going on, subscribe to the Queer Serial Newsletter in the link in the episode notes. Thanks to two of my top donors who have helped make Season 2 possible. Thank you, Richard Norton and Shivian Morgan. Thanks, friends. This season is also funded in part by a grant from the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, San Francisco. Check them out at thesisters.org. Voice actors. Huge thank you to all the actors, friends, and family who have donated their time and talent to this show, especially those of you who made it happen from quarantine. Thank you so much. You are all too generous. John Martinez as Jose Saria. What a fabulous performance. Dominic Caruso as Hal Call. Olgi Fryer as Tony Segura and a street clean. Dan Unser as Lewis Christie. My dad, Matt Camp, as John Rogues. Will Roscoe as a Mattachine board member. Lucian Grateri as Ron Ballam. Gage Kyle as Jim Kepner. Jacqueline Keeling as Virginia Prince. Jen Dentel as a daughter of Belitis. John Roth as J. Edgar Hoover. Mike Lysak as an FBI agent and both he and Mike Kanish as cops. Lucy Jones as J. Bell. My darling granny, Faye Camp, as Jean Call and Mrs. Nichols. My darling grandpa, Steve Camp, as Harry Hay. Jacob Reba Wallace as Don Lucas. Evan Camp as John Macy of the Civil Service Commission. Nico Valdez as Sylvia Rivera. Nick Large as Jack Nichols. Tim O'Reilly as Jack's teacher, Mr. Snow. Adriel Trace Palacios as Jack's friend, Ted. Adriel recorded at the last minute. Thank you so much, darling. Jen Freitag played the concierge at the Hay Adams. Owen Keenan as Al Dion of the MSNY. Garrett Williams as the reporter on the Taybush raid. And Albert Williams as Frank Kameny. Thank you all so much. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. What on earth is he doing there?